to the book of Ecclesiastes. We return into the first chapter this morning. Wisdom of the uh, biblical variety is what we find here, but wisdom of the biblical variety uh, is kind of foreign to our understanding of the word in particular today, uh, wisdom. Portions of scripture which are designated wisdom literature are, for that matter, a bit strange to our modern ears. But of course, all scripture is written for our wisdom to make us wise in the Lord and is therefore profitable toward that end. And we do mean all scripture. But this genre of wisdom literature that describes the book of Job and and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, a Song of Solomon, and, and much of the Psalter are a bit strange to us, I say, in 21st century America because they're of a particular literary form. Common in the ancient Near East, not so common in 21st century America. In the culture and time in which Ecclesiastes was written, wisdom literature was a form of communication and even an art. I could present you many parallel examples from ancient history, and I know many of you are already familiar with them because you've studied them yourselves. The difference between those others, of course, and and these before us in our Bible is simply that what we have here is wisdom imparted by God through his servants to us. The term wisdom is often used in the pages of Scripture. The opening chapters of the book of Proverbs calls us like a father does his children to to seek after wisdom, even personifies wisdom as a woman who is very attractive, not sexually, but for her beauty and for her virtue. If you pick up a, a concordance and look up the word wisdom, you will find the term used often from cover to cover as something which must be sought after very important, though, that we accurately define and understand the term this morning, and all the more because we use the word today in a very different sense. We think of wisdom today largely as an intellectual virtue, synonymous with knowledge or with understanding. That's not its primary connotation in the Bible. For example, when making the robe with which Aaron was to lead the worship service in Exodus 28, the Lord calls on those to whom he has given wisdom to make the garments. Isn't that interesting? Here wisdom is the ability to turn what is in the mind into a beautiful reality. In Proverbs 30, verses 24 and following, four creatures are described as wise the ant, uh, the coney or badger, the locust, and the lizard. There's wisdom. And all through the wisdom literature, the wise man or the wise woman is the godly man or woman, the one who can live life in the world full of temptations as it is and pitfalls and still make life something beautiful for God. It's the skill of living rightly. It is holy character. I say that because you remember that the fool in wisdom literature is not necessarily, maybe not even most of the time, intellectually stupid. Rather, he is morally weak. 
always falling prey to peer pressure, never able to see through the temptations to the real and true consequences of sin. That's foolish. And so also in the New Testament, wisdom refers to something deeper and, and than we understand today by that word. For example, uh, when James writes near the opening of that letter, a book of the New Testament that shares many characteristics with the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, as we learned in our series of studies in James in the evenings, I say when James writes that if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, he's not speaking primarily of guidance uh, or good ideas or intellectual understanding. James is speaking of a request for godliness, for strong character in the face of trial and temptation. And that's clear as James unfolds that as we've studied together in this house uh, for the rest of his letter, discussing the difference between true wisdom and, and false wisdom in his book. That being the case, wisdom being so crucial to the Christian life, so essential for us to have, it's not hard to understand why the wisdom books of the Old Testament, including and especially the book of Ecclesiastes, are so very important. Filled as they are with the most practical and relevant instruction for living the godly life. And then comes this. <laughs> then comes in the book of Ecclesiastes, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1, which at first doesn't seem to fit. Here we learn not of wisdom's benefits. Here we learn of wisdom's limits. Here we learn not of wisdom's joys, but of its sorrows. Not of its usefulness, but when trying to unlock the fundamental mystery of life under the sun, it's virtual uselessness. Are you ready? Let's read after we pray. Father, we ask that you will bless your word we've already established in our hearts, and you've established in your word that every single word that comes from your scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit is profitable for us, for teaching, for training, for reproof and correction, that we may be fully equipped for every good work. Equip us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. <laughs> what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom 
stand in no madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. After the death of David, the first king to enjoy the Lord's full blessing upon his leadership in Israel, David's son Solomon became king over the people of Israel. Immediately by the Lord's hand, Solomon established himself as leader over Israel. And strong leader that he was, uh, mighty in the ancient Near Eastern world, in Palestine, he did what might have been a common practice in that culture. He went to the God of his people to inquire uh, of him what they were to do as a nation. Having led all of the people up to Gibeon to seek the Lord at his tabernacle, the tabernacle which Moses had built in the wilderness, Solomon went up to the altar and there he offered a thousand burnt offerings. In other words, there was a great and fantastic worship service held to the Lord where they did exactly, by the way, what we're doing in this house at this mo moment, coming into the presence of the Lord and worship and offering a sacrifice to him. Well, later that evening, as Solomon was sleeping, the Lord came to him and spoke with him and asked Solomon what it was that he desired. Now, let me ask you, if the Lord came to you tonight and said to you, what do you want? What, what do you want? Just name it. What would you have, what would you love to have more than anything else in the world? What would it be? What would you tell him? What do you want more than anything else right now? A bigger house? Oh, a, a nice car? More money? Let me ask you, children. Children, it would, would you, what would you ask God for? God comes to your children and he says, what do you want? Just name it, I'll give it to you. What do you want? What would you ask him for? Maybe you had your eye on a particular toy. Maybe... Maybe you'd like more friends, I don't know, some money, what would it be? You know, when the Lord asked Solomon this important question, Solomon said to the Lord, king as he was, in charge of so many people and things, he said, Lord, I'm a little child, and, and I don't know how to even to carry out my duties, to, to rule over these thousands and thousands of people. So do you remember what he asked for? Remember what Solomon asked for? Did he ask for a bunch of money? Did he ask for a bunch of toys? Did he ask for an increased number of soldiers? What did he ask for? One thing. Wisdom. And because he asked for wisdom, the Lord gave him wisdom and then gave him everything else that he could possibly desire. In fact, no king ever had as much as Solomon to that day, nor would there be another king uh, after him who had as much wisdom, or riches or splendor for that matter. In fact, so great was Solomon's wisdom that, that not only did his own people come right to the palace to solve disputes, but for his wisdom, Solomon was consulted by the, the leaders all around the world. 
The Bible tells us that God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Imagine that, children. Wisdom is as boundless as the sea on the seashore. You've been to the beach, maybe. You remember the sand? You could pick up a, some sand. Can you imagine counting little grains? One, two, three, four, four little grains of sand. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then you look up, and as far as you can see goes the sand. That's how wise Solomon was. His wisdom was like the sand on the seashore, beyond measure. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the east, the scripture says, and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. In fact, so it, in other words, Solomon was the wisest man for all the men of the east. Remember where the wise men came from? We just remember during Christmas time, the wise men came from the east. Wisest of all people to the west. You know, the University of Alexandria had nothing on Solomon. He became famous all through the world and spoke much wisdom, thousands of proverbs and songs of wisdom. We still sing the, song, uh, the words of Solomon uh, very often in our worship. Can you remember when we have sung the words of Solomon in our worship? Can you remember? It was about five minutes ago. <laughs> we just sang Psalm 72. And if you care, not right now, but later on, look it up. The first verse in Hebrew of Psalm 72 is simply of Solomon. So in presenting our offerings, now blessed be the Lord our God, the words of Solomon. In all the world, there was none so wise as Solomon. In fact, he took up where Adam left off. When sin came into the world by describing plant life from the least to the greatest, from the great cedars of Lebanon that Solomon studied to the little scraggly weeds that came out of the wall or out of the cracks in the sidewalk, he taught about plants, he taught about animals, he taught about birds, he taught about reptiles, about fish. Kings from all over the world sent their ambassadors to come and study under Solomon. Even today, Solomon's wisdom remains unsurpassed. Still on the unattainable benchmark for all, all other wisdom. When you want to pay a compliment to somebody for the, the brightness of their thought or, or their idea, what do, you, what do you say? You say, wow, that was Solomonic, right? And yet listen to this. In the course of trying to discern the meaning of life, after assiduously struggling with all that he experienced under the sun, having tried his very best to unravel the mysteries, chase down the answers, find that key we talked about last week to unlock the mystery of life, delving into the deepest questions in the universe by the application of his wisdom. Solomon had to come to this conclusion that everything done under heaven is vanity, meaningless, a chasing after the wind. It was by wisdom that he came to realize, verse 15, that what is crooked cannot be straightened. 
what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, by applying wisdom, the teacher found that no matter how smart we think we are or how wise we have become, the events that take place around us, indeed events of our lives, are unalterable and there's nothing you can do ultimately to change the events of the world. It drives us crazy because there's so much in the world that is crooked and you can do nothing to straighten it. We learn, in fact, from, verse, uh, from chapter 7 that it's, <laughs> it's God who made it crooked. Good luck straightening it out. What we... What hope do we have who love things to be straight? Am I the only one in the room? Okay, I may be one of the worst in the room. <laughs> who love things to be straight. Who see something crooked and just <coughs> have to straighten it out, right? What hope do we have when things are unalterably crooked? In fact, in a world full of crooked. And then he says, what is lacking cannot be counted. So what hope do we have of piecing this life together when, when God has hidden the puzzle pieces? Have you ever bought a puzzle down at the secondhand store? You bring it home, you're all excited, you picked up a puzzle for 25 cents, you know, and you're going to enjoy this, so you start working on it, you're putting it together, and you get, you get to the end and you find out, oh, what? Yes, that piece is missing. Oh. Imagine you take a piece, puzzle home from the secondhand store and you start laying it out and you find out that none of the corners are there. <laughs> And then, none of the edges are either. So you begin piecing, piecing it together anyway, but you know what you find out? There are pieces missing from the middle, too. You see, what, what, what's lacking cannot be counted. How can you put the world together and it, understand the world when... You don't have all the pieces. You don't even have the corners. And a lot of the middle pieces are missing too. And good luck trying to find the edges. That's what it's like when we try to understand the world by wisdom. How can you put it together when you don't even have all the pieces? Now, we think we're smart, don't we? Oh my, we think we're so smart. We imagine that if we just worked hard enough, we could accomplish anything and answer any question, right? Uh, choose any area. We, we just trust the medical community to, to come up and solve every problem uh, for us, right? Or, or we humans think that, that we, with all our power and technology, we will alter the course of events. And we look forward to the day when we'll make ourselves invincible to disease, when we'll change the patterns of the weather and 
and time and circumstance. How foolish we are to think this way. And every once in a while we're given another stark reminder that we are and must ever remain creatures of circumstance in the world. Consider the waves now. Have you noticed this? How the waves of devastating storms are now battering our land one after another ad seriatim. Almost ad nauseum. Despite all our weather detecting radars and equipment and all our technology and our satellites and our power, and we can only watch helplessly as the rains and the winds batter our houses and our businesses and even our church buildings and level them to the ground, burying others under landslides of earth, carrying still others away in torrents of water. Dear flock, the first lesson we have to learn with Solomon here is that though we may have wisdom, it is still limited. Very limited. And in fact, the first thing, uh, here's an irony, the first thing that true wisdom shows you is its own limitations, is your own limitations. The first conclusion of true wisdom, as a seminary professor of mine once counseled me, is that duties are ours, but events are God's. In fact, having realized the limitations of wisdom, the teacher turns then to consider wisdom itself. Interesting, and finds it also to be lacking. Picking up at verse 16, the teacher speaks to himself. He says, self, you have acquired great wisdom. You've surpassed all who are over Jerusalem before you. Your heart has had great experience of wisdom and of knowledge. Now take all of that wisdom and apply it to the study of wisdom. But in the process of using Wisdom, to study wisdom, he came to realize by wisdom that wisdom itself and for itself and for its own ends is also a chasing after the wind. I don't know if you've ever tried chasing the wind, but as I was working on this very sermon this week, there was a great wind blowing outside on the window and wall of my study and I imagine myself right at this point getting up from the desk and running outside and chasing it. Start chasing the wind. Even if you could chase the wind, how would you ever capture it? You know, if you could run 20 miles an hour and, and it, how would you take hold of it? That's, that's the point. That's the, the pursuit to this elusive key that that we talked about last time. It's like chasing the wind. And it, it's, it's worse than that because re, re, reading verse 18, in much wisdom is much vexation and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. In other words, with much wisdom comes much sadness. The more knowledge you have, the more wisdom you have, the more grief. Not as with anything else, such as money or possessions or pleasures, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with wisdom. In fact, just like those other things, wisdom is to be enjoyed. We'll learn that from 
Ecclesiastes 2 eventually because it's a blessing from God. But like those other things, we can abuse wisdom when the acquisition of wisdom becomes the goal of our lives. When we, when we desire wisdom like, like others desire money or possessions or pleasures and the equation nowhere includes a supreme desire to serve God with this. To, to, to advance his kingdom, to seek first his kingdom and its righteousness. Then, as with anything else, gaining it will be an empty and very disappointing affair because wisdom brings sorrow. With wisdom comes the desire to know the eternality of all things, to know the divine scheme, and yet even if you should gain the wisdom of Solomon himself, you will never grasp the eternal plan of God. Instead, the more wisdom you gain the more you recognize the devastation which the fall and sin has wrecked upon the world. The wiser you are, the more sorrowful you are for the way things are in your life, the way things are in the world. You know, 33 years ago, before I went to seminary to train for the ministry, I was, in one sense, truly happier than I am today. I was. Before I studied the doctrines of Scripture in depth required for training for the ministry, before I spent these nearly 30 years in ministry, I hadn't nearly the depth of the sense of my own sinfulness and of the sinfulness of others and of the devastating effect of sin that it's brought on us and brought on all creation. I hadn't near the desire to know the eternality of all things. I hadn't near the understanding of how limited we are by our sinfulness and by our creatureliness until I gained what wisdom the Lord has been kind enough to grant me through these many years of study and ministry. In some ways, as I say, I would be a happier man today if I had never gone into the ministry if I would simply have continued on with trucking, you know, learn the 13-gear pattern, drive down the road, get the freight where it's wanting to go, that's a happy place. <laughs> if I had remained concerned only with myself and my, with my family, had not been burdened, as it were, with the concerns of a congregation, which weight, by the way, is only multiplied by the ever-increasing knowledge of my own weakness and my own lack of wisdom and frailty and failings that rise from my fallenness. You see, with wisdom comes burden. It's true, as the saying goes, that ignorance is bliss. As you grow in wisdom, as you grow in wisdom, you grow in sadness as well over the sin with which you come more acutely to, uh, of acquaintance with, in your heart, recognizing it in your heart and in your life. You will grow in sadness over your own smallness in spiritual matters. The wiser you get, the more you realize and know your own need of more wisdom and the more acutely painful your shortcomings become for you. 
So this then is the second lesson about wisdom that we must learn this morning, that with, with, with wisdom comes much sorrow. And you say, well, if, you know, if that's what wisdom brings, then I don't want it. You go ahead and keep it. Uh, but for every verse that reminds us in the scripture that wisdom brings sorrow, there are a thousand verses that exhort us to find wisdom and to pursue wisdom and to grow in wisdom. There must, therefore, be some value to wisdom, is there not? And indeed, there is. Relatively speaking, wisdom is still the better choice than empty folly. Jump ahead with me to chapter 2, verse 13. We read this, that this is more gain, there's more gain in wisdom than in folly. So it remains that wisdom is the better choice. And yet, and yet, the same fate overtakes the wise as the foolish, right? Verse 15 of chapter 2, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? In other words, what good has all this wisdom done for me? And hence the conclusion, this is vanity. Wise people like foolish people, as we learned last time, we're all forgotten. Both of us die and are gone. Now, some try to soften the blow of Scripture here and of this text by supposing that the wisdom about which Solomon is speaking here is simply secular wisdom. Oh, he must be talking about secular wisdom, not godly wisdom. That couldn't be the case. That the same fate overtakes the one who has worldly wisdom as the one who has worldly foolishness. That must be what he's saying. But, but that simply will not do. The text will not allow it. Solomon is speaking here of godly wisdom. And to prove the point, the seal on the whole thing is seen when you answer this question for me. Where is Solomon now? He's in the grave. Just as he said. Just as he anticipated. The same fate overtook him as took the fools of fools in Jerusalem. All got buried. They're all dead and buried. All the wisdom in the world, my brothers and sisters, will not keep your heart ticking when your time comes. This is the second week in a row you've had to stop and scratch your head and ask yourself, why did I come to church today? <laughs> what? If this is what I was going to hear, and if you're asking that question, you hear two things. First, hear this. Hang in there. Hang in there. I need you to stay with me a little, little longer. Solomon will give us some answers eventually and some encouragement soon. But second, second, listen carefully to what he has to say here. It's very important for us to, to hear. These realities might be very depressing for us were it not for the fact that it is the common experience of all mankind. This is simply the Bible being honest. It's refreshing, isn't it? There's no pie-in-the-sky stuff here. The Bible doesn't feed you a bunch of fairy tales. 
This is the Bible acknowledging the reality with which you and I live our lives every day. Look, if the smartest, if the wisest man who ever lived struggled the way you struggle over these things, well, then you find yourself in good company, don't you? So it's okay for us not to understand. It's okay. It is enough for us to understand that God understands even if he's not in the business of explaining it to us. Even the wisest of us. Amen.